Chapter 5 1841 at the age of twenty-three to twenty-four, part one, of the Journal of Henry David Thoreau, volume one, 1837 to 1846. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter five, part one. January 23rd. A day is lapsing. I hear cockerels crowing in the yard and see them stalking among the chips in the sun. I hear busy feet on the floors, and the whole house jars with industry. Surely the day is well spent, and the time is full to overflowing. Mankind is as busy as the flowers in summer, which make haste to unfold themselves in the forenoon and close their petals in the afternoon. The momentous topics of human life are always of secondary importance to the business in hand, just as carpenters discuss politics between the strokes of the hammer while they are shingling a roof. The squeaking of the pump sounds as necessary as the music of the spheres. The solidity and apparent necessity of this routine insensibly recommend it to me. It is like a cane or a cushion for the infirm, and in view of it all are infirm. If there were but one erect and solid standing tree in the woods, all creatures would go to rub against it and make sure of their footing. Routine is a ground to stand on, a wall to retreat to. We cannot draw on our boots without bracing ourselves against it. It is the fence over which neighbors lean when they talk. All this cock-crowing and hawing and geeing and business in the streets is like the springboard on which tumblers perform and develop their elasticity. Our health requires that we should recline on it from time to time. When we are in it, the hand stands still on the face of the clock, and we grow like corn in the genial dankness and silence of the night. Our weakness wants it, but our strength uses it. Good for the body is the work of the body, good for the soul the work of the soul, and good for either the work of the other. Let them not call hard names, nor know a divided interest. When I detect a beauty in any of the recesses of nature, I am reminded, by the serene and retired spirit in which it requires to be contemplated, of the inexpressible privacy of a life. How silent and unambitious it is! The beauty there is in mosses will have to be considered from the holiest, quietest nook. The gods delight in stillness. They say, st, st. My truest, serenest moments are too still for emotion. They have woolen feet. In all our lives we live under the hill, and if we are not gone, we live there still. 
January 24th, Sunday. I almost shrink from the arduousness of meeting men erectly day by day. Be resolutely and faithfully what you are. Be humbly what you aspire to be. Be sure you give men the best of your wares, though they be poor enough, and the gods will help you to lay up a better store for the future. Man's noblest gift to man is his sincerity, for it embraces his integrity also. Let him not dole out of himself anxiously to suit their weaker or stronger stomachs, but make a clean gift of himself and empty his coffers at once. I would be in society as in the landscape. In the presence of nature there is no reserve nor effrontery. Coleridge says of the, quote, ideas spoken out everywhere in the Old and New Testament, end quote, that they, quote, resemble the fixed stars which appear of the same size to the naked as to the armed eye, the magnitude of which the telescope may rather seem to diminish than to increase. End quote. It is more proper for a spiritual fact to have suggested an analogous natural one than for the natural fact to have preceded the spiritual in our minds. By spells, seriousness will be forced to cut capers and drink a deep and refreshing draught of silliness. To turn this sedate day of Lucifer's and Apollo's into an all-fool's day for Harlequin and Cornwallis. The sun does not grudge his rays to either, but they are alike patronized by the gods. Like overtasked schoolboys, all my members and nerves and sinews petition thought for a recess, and my very thigh-bones itch to slip away from under me, and run and join the melee. I exult in stark inanity, leering on nature and the soul. We think the gods reveal themselves only to sedate and musing gentlemen, but not so. The buffoon in the midst of his antics catches unobserved glimpses, which he treasures for the lonely hour. When I have been playing Tom Fool, I have been driven to exchange the old for a more liberal and Catholic philosophy. January 25th, Monday Today I feel the migratory instinct strong in me, and all my members and humors anticipate the breaking up of winter. If I yielded to this impulse, it would surely guide me to summer haunts. This indefinite restlessness and fluttering on the perch do, no doubt, prophesy the final migration of souls out of nature to a serene summer, in long harrows and waving lines in the spring weather, over what fair uplands and fertile Elysian meadows winging their way at evening 
and seeking a resting place with loud cackling and uproar. Wealth, no less than knowledge, is power. Among the Bedouins the richest man is the sheik. Among savages he who has most iron and wampum is chief, and in England and America he is the merchant prince. We should strengthen and beautify and industriously mould our bodies to be fit companions of the soul, assist them to grow up like trees and be agreeable and wholesome objects in nature. I think if I had had the disposal of this soul of man, I should have bestowed it sooner on some antelope of the plains than upon this sickly and sluggish body. January 26th, Tuesday I have as much property as I can command and use. If, by a fault in my character, I do not derive my just revenues, there is virtually a mortgage on my inheritance. A man's wealth is never entered in the registrar's office. Wealth does not come in along the great thoroughfares. It does not float on the Erie or Pennsylvania Canal, but is imported by a solitary track without bustle or competition, from a brave industry to a quiet mind. I had a dream last night which had reference to an act in my life in which I had been most disinterested and true to my highest instinct, but completely failed in realizing my hopes. And now, after so many months, in the stillness of sleep, complete justice was rendered me. It was a divine remuneration. In my waking hours, I could not have conceived of such retribution. The presumption of desert would have damned the whole. But now I was permitted to be not so much a subject as a partner to that retribution. It was the award of divine justice, which will at length be, and is even now, accomplished. Good writing, as well as good acting, will be obedience to conscience. There must not be a particle of will or whim mixed with it. If we can listen, we shall hear. By reverently listening to the inner voice, we may reinstate ourselves on the pinnacle of humanity. January 27th, Wednesday in the compensation of the dream, there was no implied loss to any, but a measurable advantage to all. The punishment of sin is not positive, as is the reward of virtue. For a flower, I like the name pansy, or pansee, best of any. January 28th. No innocence can quite stand up under suspicion if it is conscious of being suspected. In the company of one who puts a wrong construction upon your actions, they are apt really to deserve a mean construction. 
while in that society I can never retrieve myself. Attribute to me a great motive, and I shall not fail to have one. But a mean one, and the fountain of virtue will be poisoned by the suspicion. Show men unlimited faith as the coin with which you deal with them, and they will invariably exhibit the best wares they have. I would meet men as the friends of all their virtue and the foes of all their vice, for no man is the partner of his guilt. If you suspect me, you will never see me, but all our intercourse will be the politest leave-taking. I shall constantly defer and apologize and postpone myself in your presence. The self-defender is accursed in the sight of gods and men. He is a superfluous knight who serves no lady in the land. He will find in the end that he has been fighting windmills and battered his mace to no purpose. The injured man with querulous tone resisting his fate is like a tree struck by lightning which rustles its sear leaves the winter through, not having vigor enough to cast them off. As for apologies, I must be off with the dew and the frost, and leave mankind to repair the damage with their gauze, screens, and straw. Resistance is a very wholesome and delicious morsel at times. When Venus advanced against the Greeks with resistless valor, it was by far the most natural attitude into which the poet could throw his hero to make him resist heroically. To a devil one might yield gracefully, but a god would be a worthy foe and would pardon the affront. It would be worth while, once for all, fairly and cleanly to tell how we are to be used as vendors of lucifer matches send directions in the envelope both how light may be readily procured and no accident happen to the user let your mood determine the form of salutation and approach the creature with a natural nonchalance as though he were anything but what he is and you were anything but what you are, as though he were he and you were you. In short, as though he were so insignificant that it did not signify, and so important that it did not import. Depend upon it, the timber is well seasoned and tough, and will bear rough usage, and if it should crack, there is plenty more where it came from. I am no piece of chinaware that cannot be jostled against my neighbor without danger of rupture from the collision and must needs ring a scrannel strain to the end of my days when once I am cracked, but rather one of the old-fashioned wooden trenchers, which one while stands at the head of the table and at another is a milking-stool, and at another a seat for children, 
and finally goes down to its grave not unadorned with honorable scars and does not die till it is worn out use me for i am useful in my way i stand as one of many petitioners from toadstool and henbane up to dahlia and violet supplicating to be put to my use if by any means ye may find me serviceable whether for a medicated drink or bath as balm and lavender or for fragrance as verbena and geranium or for sight as cactus or for thoughts as pansy january twenty ninth there is something proudly thrilling in the thought that this obedience to conscience and trust in god which is so solemnly preached in extremities and arduous circumstances is only to retreat to one's self and rely on our own strength in trivial circumstances i find myself sufficient to myself and in the most momentous i have no ally but myself and must silently put by their harm by my own strength as i did the former as my own hand bent aside the willow in my path so must my single arm put to flight the devil and his angels god is not our ally when we shrink and neuter when we are bold if by trusting in God you lose any particle of your vigor, trust in him no longer. When you trust, do not lay aside your armor, but put it on and buckle it tighter. If by reliance on the gods I have disbanded one of my forces, then it was poor policy. I had better have retained the most inexperienced Tyro who had straggled into the camp and let go the heavenly alliance. I cannot afford to relax discipline because God is on my side, for he is on the side of discipline. And if the gods were only the heavens I fought under, I would not care if they stormed or were calm. I do not want a countenance, but a help. And there is more of God and divine help in a man's little finger than in idle prayer and trust. The best and bravest deed is that which the whole man, heart, lungs, hands, fingers, and toes, at any time prompts. Each hanger-on in the purlieus of the camp must strike his standard at the signal from the praetorian tent and fall into the line of march but if a single subtler delay to make up his pack then suspect the fates and consult the omens again this is the meaning of integrity this is to be an integer and not a fraction be even for all virtuous ends, but odd for all vice. Be a perfect power, so that any of your roots multiplied into itself may give the whole again. Beauty is compared, 
not measured for it is the creature of proportions not of size size must be subdued to it it is hard for a tall or a short person to be beautiful to graft the persian lilac on the ash is as if you were to splice the thigh bones of the venus de medici friends will have to be introduced each time they meet they will be eternally strange to one another and when they have mutually appropriated their value for the last hour they will go and gather a new measure of strangeness for the next they are like two boughs crossed in the wood which play backwards and forwards upon one another in the wind and only wear into each other but never the sap of the one flows into the pores of the other for then the wind would no more draw from them those strains which enchanted the wood they are not two united but rather one divided of all strange and unaccountable things this journalizing is the strangest it will allow nothing to be predicated of it. Its good is not good, nor its bad, bad. If I make a huge effort to expose my innermost and richest wares to light, my counter seems cluttered with the meanest homemade stuffs. But after months or years, I may discover the wealth of India and whatever rarity is brought over land from cathay and that confused heap and what perhaps seemed a festoon of dried apple or pumpkin will prove a string of brazilian diamonds or pearls from coromandel men lie behind the barrier of a relation as effectually concealed as the landscape by a mist and when at length some unforeseen accident throws me into a new attitude to them, I am astounded, as if for the first time I saw the sun on the hillside. They lie out before me like a new order of things. As, when the master meets his pupil as a man, then first do we stand under the same heavens, and master and pupil alike go down the resistless ocean stream together. January 30th, Saturday Far over the fields, between the tops of yonder wood, I see a slight cloud, not larger than the vapor from a kettle, drifting by its own inward purpose in a direction contrary to the planet as it flits across the dells and defiles of the treetops, now seen, then lost beyond a pine, I am curious to know wherein its will resides, for to my eye it has no heart, nor lungs, nor brain, nor any interior and private chamber which it may inhabit. Its motion reminds me of those lines of Milton. Quote, As when far off at sea a fleet descried, hangs in the clouds, 
by equinoctial winds, close sailing from Bengala or the Isles, of Ternate and Tidore, whence merchants bring their spicy drugs they on the trading flood ply stemming nightly toward the pole. The snow collects upon the plumes of the pitch pine in the form of a pineapple, which if you divide in the middle will expose three red kernels like the tamarind stone. So does winter with his mock harvest jeer at the sincerity of summer. The tropical fruits, which will not bear the rawness of our summer, are imitated in a thousand fantastic shapes by the whimsical genius of winter. In winter, the warmth comes directly from the sun and is not radiated from the earth. In summer, I forget to bless the sun for his heat, but when I feel his beams on my back as I thread some snowy dale, I am grateful as for a special kindness which would not be weary of well-doing, but had pursued me even into that by-place. When the wind blows, the fine snow comes filtering down through all the aisles of the wood in a golden cloud. The trees covered with snow admit a very plain and clean light, but not brilliant, as if through windows of ground glass. A sort of white darkness it is, all of the sun's splendor that can be retained. The fashions of the wood are more fluctuating than those of Paris. Snow, rime, ice, green and dry leaves incessantly make new patterns they are all the shapes and hues of the kaleidoscope and the designs and ciphers of books of heraldry in the outlines of the trees every time i see a nodding pine top it seems as if a new fashion of wearing plumes had come into vogue i saw a team come out of a path in the woods as though it had never gone in, but belonged there, and only came out like Alicia's bears. It was wholly of the village, and not at all of the wood. These particles of snow which the early wind shakes down are what is stirring, or the morning news of the wood. Sometimes it is blown up above the trees, like the sand of the desert. You glance up these paths, closely embowered by bent trees, as through the side aisles of a cathedral, and expect to hear a choir chanting from their depths. You are never so far in them as they are far before you. Their secret is where you are not, and where your feet can never carry you. I tread in the tracks of the fox which has gone before me by some hours, or which perhaps I have started with such a tiptoe of expectation as if I were on the trail of the spirit itself which resides in these woods, and expected soon to catch it in its lair. The snow falls on no two trees alike, 
but the forms it assumes are as various as those of the twigs and leaves which receive it. They are, as it were, predetermined by the genius of the tree. So one divine spirit descends alike on all, but bears a peculiar fruit in each. The divinity subsides on all men, as the snowflakes settle on the fields and ledges, and takes the form of the various clefts and surfaces on which it lodges. Here is the distinct trail of a fox stretching a quarter of a mile across the pond. Now I am curious to know what has determined its graceful curvatures, its greater or less spaces and distinctness, and how surely they were coincident with the fluctuations of some mind, why they now lead me two steps to the right, and then three to the left. If these things are not to be called up and accounted for in the Lamb's Book of Life, I shall set them down for careless accountants. Here was one expression of the divine mind this morning. The pond was his journal, and last night's snow made a tabula rasa for him. I know which way a mind wended this morning, what horizon it faced, by the setting of these tracks, whether it moved slowly or rapidly, by the greater or less intervals and distinctness, for the swiftest step leaves yet a lasting trace. Sometimes I come out suddenly upon a high plain, which seems to be the upper level and true surface of the earth, and by its very baldness aspires and lies up nearer to the stars, a place where a decalogue might be let down or a saint translated. I take a horse and oxen, standing among the woodpiles in the forest, for one of them, and when at length the horse pricks his ears, and I give him another name, where's the difference? I am startled by the possibility of such errors, and the indifference with which they are allowed to occur. Fairhaven Pond is scored with the trails of foxes, and you may see where they have gambled and gone through a hundred evolutions, which testify to a singular listlessness and leisure in nature. Suddenly, looking down the river, I saw a fox some sixty rods off, making a cross to the hills on my left. As the snow lay five inches deep, he made but slow progress, but it was no impediment to me. So, yielding to the instinct of the chase, I tossed my head aloft and bounded away, snuffing the air like a foxhound and spurning the world and the humane society at each bound. It seemed the woods rang with the hunter's horn, and Diana and all the satyrs joined in the chase and cheered me on. Olympian and Elian youths were waving palms on the hills. In the meanwhile, I gained rapidly on the fox but he showed a remarkable presence of mind, 
for instead of keeping up the face of the hill, which was steep and unwooded in that part, he kept along the slope in the direction of the forest, though he lost ground by it. Notwithstanding his fright, he took no step which was not beautiful. The course on his part was a series of most graceful curves. It was a sort of leopard canter, I should say, as if he were no wise impeded by the snow, but were husbanding his strength all the while. When he doubled, I wheeled and cut him off, bounding with fresh vigor, and Antaeus-like, recovering my strength each time I touched the snow. Having got near enough for a fair view, just as he was slipping into the wood, I gracefully yielded him the palm. He ran as though there were not a bone in his back, occasionally dropping his muzzle to the snow for a rod or two, and then tossing his head aloft when satisfied of his course. When he came to a declivity, he put his four feet together and slid down it like a cat. He trod so softly that you could not have heard it from any nearness, and yet with such expression that it would not have been quite inaudible at any distance. So, hoping this experience would prove a useful lesson to him, I returned to the village by the highway of the river. There is all the romance of my youthfulest moment in music. Heaven lies about us as in our infancy. There is nothing so wild and extravagant that it does not make true. It makes a dream my only real experience, and prompts faith to such elasticity that only the incredible can satisfy it. It tells me again to trust the remotest and finest, as the divinest instinct. All that I have imagined of heroism it reminds and reassures me of. It is a life unlived, a life beyond life, where at length my years will pass. I look under the lids of time. End of chapter 5, part 1「at each step man measures himself against the system. If he cannot actually belay the sun and make it fast to this planet, yet the British man alone spins a yarn in one year which will reach fifty-one times the distance from the earth to the sun. So, having his cable ready twisted and coiled, the fixed stars are virtually within his grasp. He carries his lasso coiled at his saddle bow, 
but is never forced to cast it. All things are subdued to me by virtue of that coiled lasso I carry, and I lead them without the trouble of a cast. It is the rope that lies coiled on the deck which moors my ship, and I have never to bend a cable. In God's hall hang cables of infinite length, and in his entries stand bars of infinite strength. But those cables were never bent, nor those bars ever poised, for all things have been subdued to the divinity from the first, and these are the seals of his power. The guilty never escape, for a steed stands ever ready, saddled and bridled at God's door, and the sinner surrenders at last. February 2nd, Tuesday It is easy to repeat, but hard to originate. Nature is readily made to repeat herself in a thousand forms, and in the dagger type her own light is amanuensis, and the picture, too, has more than a surface significance, a depth equal to the prospect, so that the microscope may be applied to the one as the spyglass to the other. Thus we may easily multiply the forms of the outward, but to give the within outwardness, that is not easy. That an impression may be taken, perfect stillness, though but for an instant, is necessary. There is something analogous in the birth of all rhymes. Our sympathy is a gift whose value we can never know, nor when we impart it. The instant of communion is when, for the least point of time, we cease to oscillate and coincide in rest by as fine a point as a star pierces the firmament. The stars are the mountain peaks of celestial countries. A child asked its father what became of the old moon, and he said it was cut up into stars. There is always a single ear in the audience to which we address ourselves. How much does it concern you, the good opinion of your friend? Therein is the measure of fame. For the herd of men multiplied many times will never come up to the value of one friend. In this society there is no fame but love. For as our name may be on the lips of men, so are we in each other's hearts. There is no ambition but virtue. For why should we go round about who may go direct? All those contingencies which the philanthropist, statesman, and housekeeper write so many books to meet are simply and quietly settled in the intercourse of friends. For our aspirations there is no expression as yet, but if we obey steadily, 
by another year we shall have learned the language of last year's aspirations when i read the other day the weight of some of the generals of the revolution it seemed no unimportant fact in their biography it is at least one other means of comparing ourselves with them tell me how much milton or shakespeare weighed and i will get weighed myself that i may know better what they are to me weight has something very imposing in it for we cannot get rid of it once in the scales we must weigh and are we not always in the scales and weighing just our due though we kick the beam and do all we can to heavy or lighten ourselves february third wednesday the present seems never to get its due it is the least obvious neither before nor behind but within us all the past plays into this moment and we are what we are my aspiration is one thing my reflection another but overall myself and condition is and does to men and nature i am each moment a finished tool a spade a barrow or a pickaxe this immense promise is no efficient quality for all practical purposes i am done when we do a service to our neighbor we serve our next neighbor we are constantly invited to be what we are as to something worthy and noble i never waited but for myself to come round none ever detained me but i lagged or tagged after myself it studs us to be as true to children and bores as to god himself it is the only attitude which will suit all occasions it only will make the earth yield her increase and by it do we effectually expostulate with the wind if i run against a post this is the remedy i would meet the morning and evening on very sincere ground when the sun introduces me to a new day i silently say to myself let us be faithful all round we will do justice and receive it something like this is the secret charm of nature's demeanor toward us strict conscientiousness and disregard of us when we have ceased to have regard for ourselves so she can never offend us how true she is and never swerves in her most genial moment her laws are as steadfastly and relentlessly fulfilled though the decalogue is rhymed and set to sweetest music as in her sternest any exhibition of affection as an inadvertent word or act or look seems premature as if the time were not ripe for it like the buds which the warm days near the end of winter 
cause to push out and unfold before the frosts are yet gone. My life must seem as if it were passing at a higher level than that which I occupy. It must possess a dignity which will not allow me to be familiar. The unpretending truth of a simile implies sometimes such distinctness in the conception as only experience could have supplied. Homer could not improve the simile of a soldier who was careful enough to tell the truth. If he knows what it was, he will know what it was like. As the ancient Britons were exhibited in Rome in their native costume, and the Dacian came to display his swordsmanship in the arena, so Tyrolese peasants have come farther yet, even from the neighborhood of Rome to Concord, for our entertainment this night. February 4th, Thursday when you are once comfortably seated at a public meeting there is something unmanly in the sitting on tiptoe and qui vive attitude the involuntarily rising into your throat as if gravity had ceased to operate when a lady approaches with quite godlike presumption to elicit the miracle of a seat where none is Music will make the most nervous chord vibrate healthily. Such a state of unrest becomes only a fluttered virtue. When once I have learned my place in the sphere, I will fill it once for all, rather like a fixed star than a planet. I will rest as the mountains do, so that your ladies might as well walk into the midst of the Tyrol and look for nature to spread them a green lawn for their disport in the midst of those solemn fastnesses, as that I should fly out of my orbit at their approach and go about eccentric like a comet to endanger other systems. No, be true to your instincts and sit. Wait till you can be genuinely polite, if it be till doomsday, and not lose your chance everlastingly by a cowardly yielding to young etiquette. By your look, say unto them, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places, and I will fill that station God has assigned me. As well, Miss Cassiopeia up there might ask the brazen-fronted Taurus to draw in his horns, that she might shine in his stead. No, no, not till my cycle is completed. How is it that motion will always find space to move in and rest a seat? Men hate antagonism, and the weaker will always yield to the stronger. If a stranger enter with sufficient determination into a crowded assembly, as if commissioned by the gods to find a seat there, as the falling stone by a divine impulse seeks a resting place, 
each one will rise without thinking to offer his place. Now we have only to be commissioned to sit and depend upon it the gods will not balk their own work. Ye came one day too late, as did the poet after the world had been divided, and so returned to dwell with the god that sent him. When presumptuous womanhood demands to surrender my position, I bide my time, though it be with misgiving, and yield to no mortal shove, but expect a divine impulse. Produce your warrant, and I will retire. For not now can I give you a clear seat, but must leave part of my manhood behind and wander a diminished man, who at length will not have length and breadth enough to fill any seat at all. It was very kind in the gods who gave us a now condition, or condition of rest, in which we might unhurriedly deliberate before taking a step. When I give up my now and here, without having secured my then and there, I am the prodigal son of a kind father, and deserve no better than the husks which the swine eat, nor that the fatted calf be killed for me. Rest for ever. When instinct comes to the rescue of your politeness, it will seat you securely still, though it be to hang by a rail or poise yourself on a stick. To do otherwise is to be polite only as the soldier who runs away when the enemy demands his post. Politeness is rather when the generals interchange civilities before the fight, not when one returns a sword after the victory. Not only in his cunning hand and brain, but when he speaks too, does man assert his superiority. He conquers the spaces with his voice as well as the lion. The voice of a strong man modulated to the cadence of some tune is more imposing than any natural sound. The keeper's is the most commanding, and is heard over all the din of the menagerie. A strong, musical voice imposes a new order and harmony upon nature. From it, as a center, the law is promulgated to the universe. What it lacks in volume and loudness may always be made up in musical expression and distinctness. The brute growls to secure obedience, he threatens. The man speaks as though obedience were already secured. Brave speaking is the most entire and richest sacrifice to the gods. February 5th, Friday Only on rare occasions am I reminded that man too has a voice, as well as birds and quadrupeds, which breaks on the stillness of nature with its peculiar accent. The least sound pervades and subdues all space to it as long as it fills my ear. 
contrasted single with the silence, it is as wide as it. Music is the crystallization of sound. There is something in the effect of a harmonious voice upon the disposition of its neighborhood analogous to the law of crystals. It centralizes itself and sounds like the published law of things. If the law of the universe were to be audibly promulgated, no mortal lawgiver would suspect it for it would be a finer melody than his ears ever attended to. It would be sphere music. When by tutoring their voices, singers enhance one another's performance, the harmony is more complete and essential than is heard. The choir is one family held together by a very close bond. Hence the romance we associate with gypsies and circus companies and strolling musicians. The idea of brotherhood is so strong in them. Their society is ideal for that one end. There is something in this brotherhood, this feeling of kind or kindness, which insensibly elevates the subjects of it in our eyes. However poor or mean, they have something which counterbalances our contempt. This is that in the strolling pauper family which does not court our charity, but can even bless and smile on us and make the kindness reciprocal. It sanctifies the place and the hour. These rainers if they are not brothers and sisters, must be uncles and cousins at least. These Swiss, who have come to sing to us, we have no doubt are the flower of the Tyrol. Such is the instinctive kindness with which the foreigner is always received, that he is ever presumed to be the fairest and noblest of his race. The traveler finds that it is not easy to move away from his friends, after all, but all people whom he visits are anxious to supply the place to him of his parents and brothers and sisters. To these Swiss I find that I have attributed all Tell's patriotism and the devotion of Arnold Winkelried and whatever goodness or greatness belongs to that nation. All costume off a man, when not simply doffed, is grotesque. There must be a heart inside it. When these Swiss appear before me in gaiters and high-crowned hats with feathers, I am disposed to laugh. But soon I see that their serious eye becomes these, and they it. It is the sincere life passed within it which consecrates the costume of any people. A sufficiently sober eye will retrieve itself and subordinate any grotesqueness. Let Harlequin be taken with a fit of the colic in the midst of his buffoonery, and his trappings and finery will serve that mood too 
and with their drooping sympathy enhance the sincerity of his misfortune. When the soldier is hit by a cannonball, rags are as becoming as purple. So soon as a man engages to eat, drink, sleep, walk, and sit, and meet all the contingencies of life therein, his costume is hallowed and a theme for poetry, whether it be a bear's skin or ermine, a beaver hat or a Turkish turban. He will not wear anything because it is blue or black or round or square, but from a necessity which cannot be superseded. I look into the face and manners for something familiar and homely even, to be assured that the costume of the foreigner is not whimsical or finical. In all emergencies, there is always one step which you may take on firm ground where gravity will assure you footing. So you hold a draft on fate, payable at sight. February 6th, Saturday One may discover a new side to his most intimate friend when for the first time he hears him speak in public. He will be stranger to him as he is more familiar to the audience. The longest intimacy could not foretell how he would behave then. When I observe my friend's conduct toward others, then chiefly I learn the traits in his character, and in each case I am unprepared for the issue. When one gets up to address briefly a strange audience, in that little he may have opportunity to say he will not quite do himself injustice. For he will instantly and instinctively average himself to his audience. And while he is true to his own character still, he will in a few moments make that impression which a series of months and years would but expand. Before he answers, his thought like lightning runs round the whole compass of his experiences, and he is scrupulous to speak from that which he is, and with a more entire truthfulness than usual. How little do we know each other, then? Who can tell how his friend would behave on any occasion? As for those Swiss... I think of the fields their hands have ploughed and reaped, and respect their costume as the memorial, or rather contemporary, and witness of this. What is there in a toga but a Roman? What but a Quaker in a broad-brimmed hat? He who describes the dress of a Janissary going to war does me a similar service as when he paints the scenery of the battlefield. It helps make his exploit picturesque. Costume is not determined by whim, not even the tattooing and paint of the savage. Sun, wind, rain, and the form of our bodies shape our hats and coats for us, more even than taste. 
good taste secures the utmost gratification without sacrificing any conveniences if all nations derived their fashions from paris or london the world would seem like a vanity fair or an all fool's day and the tartar and bedouin ride in it like jesters in a circus and the pawnee and eskimo hunt in masquerade what i am must make you forget what i wear the fashionable world is content to be eclipsed by its dress and never will bear the contrast only industry will reform their dress they are idle exostrious building without the value of the recess in any public entertainment consists in the opportunity for self-recovery which it offers we who have been swayed as one heart expanding and contracting with the common pulse find ourselves in the interim and set us up again and feel our own hearts beating in our breasts we are always a little astonished to see a man walking across the room through an attentive audience with any degree of self-possession he makes himself strange to us he is a little stubborn withal and seems to say i am self-sustained and independent as well as the performer and am not to be swallowed up in the common enthusiasm no no there are two of us and john's as good as thomas in the recess the audience is cut up into a hundred little coteries and as soon as each individual life has recovered its tone and the purposes of health have been answered it is time for the performances to commence again in a public performer the simplest actions which at other times are left to unconscious nature as the ascending a few steps in front of an audience acquire a fatal importance and become arduous deeds when i select one here and another there and strive to join sundered thoughts i make but a partial heap after all nature strews her nuts and flowers broadcast and never collects them into heaps a man does not tell us all he has thought upon truth or beauty at a sitting but from his last thought on the subject wanders through a varied scenery of upland meadow and woodland to his next sometimes a single and casual thought rises naturally and inevitably with a queenly majesty and escort like the stars in the east fate has surely enshrined it in this hour and circumstances for some purpose what she has joined together let not man put asunder shall i transplant the primrose by the river's brim to set it beside its sister on the mountain this was the soil it grew in this the hour it bloomed in 
if sun, wind, and rain came here to cherish and expand it, shall not we come here to pluck it? Shall we require it to grow in a conservatory for our convenience? I feel slightly complimented when nature condescends to make use of me without my knowledge, as when I help scatter her seeds in my walk, or carry burrs and cockles on my clothes from field to field. I feel as though I had done something for the commonweal, and were entitled to board and lodging. I take such airs upon me as the boy who holds a horse for the circus company, whom all the spectators envy. Lura, lura, loo may be more impressively sung than very respectable wisdom talked. It is well timed, as wisdom is not always. All things prophesy but the prophet. In augury and divination, nature is put to the torture. In Ben Jonson's tragedy of Catiline, Lentulus makes answer to Catiline, who has bribed the augurs to say that he is the third Cornelius who is to be king of Rome. All prophecies, you know, suffer the torture. He who inspects the entrails is always bribed, but they are unbribable. He who seeks to know the future by unlawful means has unavoidably subjected the oracle to the torture of private and partial interests. The oracles of God serve the public interest without fee. To the just and benevolent mind, nature declares, as the sun lights the world, End of chapter 5, part 2. Chapter 5, 1841, at the age of 23 to 24, part 3, of the Journal of Henry David Thoreau, volume 1, 1837 to 1846. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5, Part 3 February 7th, Sunday Without great coat or drawers, I have advanced thus far into the snowbanks of the winter, without thought and with impunity. When I meet my neighbors in muffs and furs and tippets, they look as if they had retreated into the interior fastnesses from some foe invisible to me. They remind me that this is the season of winter, in which it becomes a man to be cold. For feeling, I am a piece of clean wood of this shape, which will do service till it rots, and though the cold has its physical effect on me, it is a kindly one, for it finds its acquaintance there. My diet is so little stimulating, and my body in consequence so little heated, as to excite no antagonism in nature, but flourishes like a tree, which finds even the winter genial to its expansion and the secretion of sap. 
may not the body defend itself against cold by its very nakedness and its elements be so simple and single that they cannot congeal frost does not affect one but several my body now affords no more pasture for cold than a leafless twig i call it a protestant warmth my limbs do not tire as formerly but I use myself as any other piece of nature, and from mere indifference and thoughtlessness may break the timber. It is the vice of the last season which compels us to arm ourselves for the next. If man always conformed to nature, he would not have to defend himself against her, but find her his constant nurse and friend, as do plants and quadrupeds. In the sunshine and the crowing of cocks I feel an illimitable holiness which makes me bless God and myself. The warm sun casts his incessant gift at my feet as I walk along, unfolding his yellow worlds. Yonder sexton, with a few cheap sounds, makes me richer than these who mind his summons. The true gift is as wide as my gratitude, and as frequent, and the donor is as grateful as the recipient. There would be a New Year's gift indeed, if we would bestow on each other our sincerity. We should communicate our wealth, and not purchase that which does not belong to us for a sign. Why give each other a sign to keep? If we gave the thing itself, there would be no need of a sign. I am not sure I should find out a really great person soon. He would be simple Thomas or Oliver for some centuries first. The lesser eminences would hide the higher and I should at last reach his top by a gentle acclivity. I felt it would be necessary to remain some weeks at the notch to be impressed by the grandeur of the scenery. We do not expect that Alexander will conquer Asia the first time we are introduced to him. A great man accepts the occasion the fates offer him. Let us not be disappointed we stand at first upon the pampas which surround him it is these mountains round about which make the valleys here below he is not a dead level so many feet above low water mark greatness is in the ascent but there is no accounting for the little men Quote, they must sweat no less to fit their properties than to express their parts. Or the line before this, quote, Would you have such a Herculean actor in the scene and not his hydra? Johnson. The eaves are running on the south side of the house. The titmouse lisps in the poplar. The bells are ringing for church, while the sun presides over all and makes his simple warmth more obvious than all else. What shall I do with this hour, 
so like time and yet so fit for eternity where in me are these russet patches of ground and scattered logs and chips in the yard i do not feel cluttered i have some notion what the john's wart and life everlasting may be thinking about when the sun shines on me as on them and turns my prompt thought into just such a seething shimmer i lie out indistinct as a heath at noonday i am evaporating and ascending into the sun nothing stands in the way to success but to failure to victory is all the way uphill to defeat the simplest white that ways may soon slide down cowards would not have victory but the fruits of victory but she it is that sweetens all the spoil thus by a just fate the booty cannot fall to him who did not win it there is victory in every effort in the least swing of the arm an indignant thought in stern content we conquer our foes great thoughts make great men without these no heraldry nor blood will avail the blood circulates to the feet and hands but the thought never descends from the head the most i can do for my friend is simply to be his friend i have no wealth to bestow on him if he knows that i am happy and loving him he will want no other reward is not friendship divine in this i have myself to respect but to myself i am not amiable but my friend is my amiableness personified and yet we walk the stage in different actors not thinking what a sublime drama we might enact if we would be joint workers and a mutual material why go to the woods to cut timber to display our art upon when here are men as trees walking the world has never learned what men can build each other up to be when both master and pupil work in love he that comes as a stranger to my house will have to stay as a stranger he has made his own reception but persevering love was never yet refused Quote, the vicious count their years virtuous their acts End quote. johnson the former consider the length of their service the latter its quality wait not till i invite thee but observe i'm glad to see thee when thou comest the most ardent lover holds yet a private court and his love can never be so strong or ethereal that there will not be danger that judgment may be rendered against the beloved i would have men make a greater use of me now i must belittle myself to have dealings with them 
my friend will show such a noble confidence that I shall aspire to the society of his good opinion. Never presume men less that you may make them more. So far as we respond to our ideal estimate of each other, do we have profitable intercourse. A brave man always knows the way, no matter how intricate the roads. February 8th. All we have experienced is so much gone within us, and there lies. It is the company we keep. One day, in health or sickness, it will come out and be remembered. Neither body nor soul forgets anything. The twig always remembers the wind that shook it, and the stone the cuff it received. Ask the old tree and the sand. To be of most service to my brother, I must meet him on the most equal and even ground, the platform on which our lives are passing. But how often does politeness permit this? I seek a man who will appeal to me when I am in fault. We will treat as gods settling the affairs of men. In his intercourse, I shall be always a god today, who was a man yesterday. He will never confound me with my guilt, but let me be immaculate and hold up my skirts. Differences he will make haste to clear up, but leave agreements unsettled the while. As time is measured by the lapse of ideas, we may grow of our own force, as the muscle adds new circles to its shell. My thoughts secrete the lime. We may grow old with the vigor of youth. Are we not always in youth so long as we face heaven? We may always live in the morning of our days. To him who seeks early, the sun never gets over the edge of the hill, but his rays fall slanting forever. His wise sayings are like the chopping of wood and crowing of cocks in the dawn. My journal is that of me which would else spill over and run to waste, gleanings from the field which in action I reap. I must not live for it, but in it for the gods. They are my correspondent, to whom daily I send off this sheet postpaid. I am clerk in their counting-room, and at evening transfer the account from day-book to ledger. It is as a leaf which hangs over my head in the path. I bend the twig and write my prayers on it. Then letting it go, the bough springs up and shows the scrawl to heaven as if it were not kept shut in my desk, but were as public a leaf as any in nature. It is papyrus by the riverside. It is vellum in the pastures. It is parchment on the hills. I find it everywhere as free as the leaves which troop along the lanes in autumn. The crow, the goose, 
the eagle carry my quill, and the wind blows the leaves as far as I go. Or, if my imagination does not soar, but gropes in slime and mud, then I write with a reed. It is always a chance scrawl, and commemorates some accident, as great as earthquake or eclipse. Like the sear leaves in yonder vase, these have been gathered far and wide. Upland and lowland, forest and field have been ransacked. In our holiest moment, our devil with a leer stands close at hand. He is a very busy devil. It gains vice some respect, I must confess, thus to be reminded how indefatigable it is. It has at least the merit of industriousness. When I go forth with zeal to some good work, my devil is sure to get his robe tucked up the first and arrives there as soon as I, with a look of sincere earnestness which puts to shame my best intent. He is as forward as I to a good work and as disinterested. He has a winning way of recommending himself by making himself useful. How readily he comes into my best project and does his work with a quiet and steady cheerfulness which even virtue may take pattern from. I never was so rapid in my virtue, but my vice kept up with me. It always came in by a hand, and never panting, but with a curried coolness halted, as if halting were the beginning, not the end of the course. It only runs the swifter because it has no rider. It never was behind me, but when I turned to look and so fell behind myself. I never did a charitable thing, but there he stood, scarce in the rear, with hat in hand, partner on the same errand, ready to share the smile of gratitude. Though I shut the door never so quick, and tell it to stay at home like a good dog, it will out with me, for I shut in my own legs so, and it escapes in the meanwhile, and is ready to back and reinforce me in most virtuous deeds. And if I turn and say, Get thee behind me, he then indeed turns to and takes the lead, though he seems to retire with a pensive and compassionate look, as much as to say, Ye know not what ye do. Just as active as I become to virtue, just so active is my remaining vice. Every time we teach our virtue a new nobleness, we teach our vice a new cunning. When we sharpen the blade, it will stab better as well as whittle. The scythe that cuts will cut our legs. We are double-edged blades, and every time we wet our virtue, the return stroke straps our vice. And when we cut a clear descending blow, our vice on the other edge rips up the work. 
where is the skillful swordsman that can draw his blade straight back out of the wound every man proposes fairly and does not wilfully take the devil for his guide as our shadows never fall between us and the sun go towards the sun and your shadow will fall behind you february ninth tuesday Quote, cato good marcus tullius which is more than great thou hadst thy education with the gods End quote. johnson better be defamed than overpraised thou canst then justly praise thyself what notoriety art thou that can be defamed who can be praised for what they are not deserve rather to be damned for what they are it is hard to wear a dress that is too long and loose without stumbling Quote, whoe'er is raised for wealth he has not he is taxed not praised End quote. says johnson if you mind the flatterer you rob yourself and still cheat him the fates never exaggerate men pass for what they are the state never fails to get a revenue out of you without a direct tax flattery would lay a direct tax what i am praised for what i am not i put to the account of the gods it needs a skilful eye to distinguish between their coin and my own but however there can be no loss either way for what meed i have earned is equally theirs let neither fame nor infamy hit you but the one go as far beyond as the other falls behind let the one glance past you to the gods and the other wallow where it was engendered the home thrusts are at helmets upon blocks and my worst foes but stab an armor through my life at this moment is like a summer morning when birds are singing yet that is false for nature's is an idle pleasure in comparison my hour has a more solid serenity i have been breaking silence these twenty-three years and have hardly made a rent in it silence has no end speech is but the beginning of it my friend thinks i keep silence who am only choked with letting it out so fast does he forget that new mines of secrecy are constantly opening in me? If any scorn your love, let them see plainly that you serve not them but another. If these bars are up, go your way to other of God's pastures and browse there the while. When your host shuts his door on you, he encloses you in the dwelling of nature. He thrusts you over the threshold of the world. My foes restore me to my friends. I might say friendship had no ears as love has no eyes. 
for no word is evidence in its court. The least act fulfills more than all words profess. The most gracious speech is but partial kindness, but the least genuine deed takes the whole man. If we had waited till doomsday, it could never have been uttered. February 10th, Wednesday that was fine praise which Ben Jonson gave to Thomas, Lord Chancellor. Quote, Whilst thou art certain to thy words once gone, as is thy conscience, which is always one. End quote. Words do not lose their truth by time or misinterpretation, but stand unscathed longer than he who spoke them. Let our words be such as we may unblushingly behold sculptured in granite on the walls to the least syllable. Our thoughts and actions may be very private for a long time, for they demand a more Catholic publicity to be displayed in than the world can afford. Our best deeds shun the narrow walks of men, and are not ambitious of the faint light the world can shed on them, but delight to unfold themselves in that public ground between God and conscience. Truth has for audience and spectator all the world. Within, where I resolve and deal with principles, there is more space and room than anywhere without, where my hands execute. Men should hear of your virtue only as they hear the creaking of the earth's axle and the music of the spheres. It will fall into the course of nature and be effectually concealed by publicness. I asked a man today if he would rent me some land, and he said he had four acres as good soil as any outdoors. It was a true poet's account of it. He and I, and all the world, went outdoors to breathe the free air and stretch ourselves. For the world is but outdoors, and we duck behind a panel. End of chapter 5, part 3「Eighteen forty one at the age of twenty three to twenty four part four of the Journal of Henry David Thoreau, volume one eighteen thirty seven to eighteen forty six This LibriVox recording is in the public domain Chapter five part four February eleventh True help for the most part implies a greatness in him who is to be helped as well as in the helper. It takes a god to be helped even. A great person, though unconsciously, will constantly give you great opportunities to serve him, but a mean one will quite preclude all active benevolence. It needs but simply and greatly to want it for once, that all true men may contend who shall be foremost to render aid. 
my neighbor's state must pray to heaven so devoutly yet disinterestedly as he never prayed in words before my ears can hear it must ask divinely but men so cobble and botch their request that you must stoop as low as they to give them aid their meanness would drag down your deed to be a compromise with conscience and not leave it to be done on the high tableland of the benevolent soul they would have you doff your bright and knightly armor and drudge for them serve them and not god but if i am to serve them i must not serve the devil what is called charity is no charity but the interference of a third person shall i interfere with fate shall i defraud man of the opportunities which god gave him and so take away his life beggars and silent poor cry how often get between me and my god i will not stay to cobble and patch god's rents but do clean new work when he has given me my hands full this almshouse charity is like putting new wine into old bottles when so many tons in god's cellars stand empty we go about mending the times when we should be building the eternity i must serve a strong master not a weak one help implies a sympathy of energy and effort else no alleviation will avail february twelfth friday those great men who are unknown to their generation are already famous in the society of the great who had gone before them all worldly fame but subsides from their high estimate beyond the stars we may still keep pace with those who have gone out of nature for we run on as smooth ground as they the early and the latter saints are separated by no eternal interval the child may soon stand face to face with the best father february thirteenth by the truthfulness of our story today we help explain ourselves for all our life henceforth how we hamper and belay ourselves by the least exaggeration the truth is god's concern he will sustain it but who can afford to maintain a lie we have taken away one of the pillars of hercules and must support the world on our shoulders who might have walked freely upon it my neighbor says that his hill farm is poor stuff and only fit to hold the world together he deserves that god should give him better for so brave a treating of his gifts instead of humbly putting up therewith it is a sort of stay or gore or gusset and he will not be blinded by modesty or gratitude but sees it for what it is 
knowing his neighbor's fertile land, he calls his by its right name. But perhaps my farmer forgets that his lean soil has sharpened his wits. This is a crop it was good for. And beside, you see the heavens at a lesser angle from the hill than from the vale. We have nothing to fear from our foes. God keeps a standing army for that service. But we have no ally against our friends, those ruthless vandals whose kind intent is a subtler poison than the colchin, a more fatal shaft than the Lydian. February 14th, Sunday. I am confined to the house by bronchitis, and so seek to content myself with that quiet and serene life there is in a warm corner by the fireside, and see the sky through the chimney-top. Sickness should not be allowed to extend further than the body. We need only to retreat further within us to preserve uninterrupted the continuity of serene hours to the end of our lives. As soon as I find my chest is not of tempered steel and heart of adamant, I bid good-bye to these and look out a new nature. I will be liable to no accidents. I shall never be poor while I can command a still hour in which to take leave of my sin. The jingling team which is creaking past reminds me of that verse in the Bible which speaks of God being heard in the bells of the horses. February 15th There is elevation in every hour. No part of the earth is so low and withdrawn that the heavens cannot be seen from it, but every part supports the sky. We have only to stand on the eminence of the hour and look out thence into the Empyrean, allowing no pinnacle above us to command an uninterrupted horizon. The moments will lie outspread around us like a blue expanse of mountain and valley while we stand on the summit of our hour as if we had descended on eagle's wings. For the eagle has stooped to his perch on the highest cliff and has never climbed the rock. He stands by his wings more than by his feet. We shall not want a foothold, but wings will sprout from our shoulders, and we shall walk securely, self-sustained. For how slight an accident shall two noble souls wait to bring them together? February 17th. Our work should be fitted to and lead on the time, as bud, flower, and fruit lead the circle of the seasons. The mechanic works no longer than his labor will pay for lights, fuel, and shop rent. Would it not be well for us to consider if our deed will warrant the expense of nature? Will it maintain the sun's light? 
our actions do not use time independently, as the bud does. They should constitute its lapse. It is their room, but they shuffle after and serve the hour. February 18th, Thursday I do not judge men by anything they can do. Their greatest deed is the impression they make on me. Some serene, inactive men can do everything. Talent only indicates a depth of character in some direction. We do not acquire the ability to do new deeds, but a new capacity for all deeds. My recent growth does not appear in any visible new talent, but its deed will enter into my gaze when I look into the sky or vacancy. It will help me to consider ferns and everlasting. Man is like a tree which is limited to no age, but grows as long as it has its root in the ground. We have only to live in the alburnum and not in the old wood. The gnarled stump has as tender a bud as the sapling. Sometimes I find that I have frequented a higher society during sleep, and my thoughts and actions proceed on a higher level in the morning. A man is the hydrostatic paradox, the counterpoise of the system. You have studied flowers and birds cheaply enough, but you must lay yourself out to buy them. February 19th. A truly good book attracts very little favor to itself. It is so true that it teaches me better than to read it. I must soon lay it down and commence living on its hint. I do not see how any can be written more, but this is the last effusion of genius. When I read an indifferent book, it seems the best thing I can do, but the inspiring volume hardly leaves me leisure to finish its latter pages. It is slipping out of my fingers while I read. It creates no atmosphere in which it may be perused, but one in which its teachings may be practiced. It confers on me such wealth that I lay it down with the least regret. What I began by reading, I must finish by acting. So I cannot stay to hear a good sermon and applaud at the conclusion, but shall be halfway to Thermopylae before that. When any joke or hoax traverses the Union in the newspapers, it apprises me of a fact which no geography or guidebook contains of a certain leisure and nonchalance pervading society. It is a piece of information from over the Alleghanies, which I know how to prize, though I did not expect it. And it is just so in nature. I sometimes observe in her a strange trifling, almost listlessness, which conducts to beauty and grace. 
the fantastic and whimsical forms of snow and ice, the unaccountable freaks which the tracks of rabbits exhibit. I know now why all those busy speculators do not die of fever and ague. Coleridge observed the, quote, landscapes made by damp on a whitewashed wall, end quote, and so have I. We seem but to linger in manhood to tell the dreams of our childhood, and they vanish out of memory ere we learn the language. It is the unexplored grandeur of the storm which keeps up the spirits of the traveler. When I contemplate a hard and bare life in the woods, I find my last consolation in its untrivialness. Shipwreck is less distressing because the breakers do not trifle with us. We are resigned as long as we recognize the sober and solemn mystery of nature. The dripping mariner finds consolation and sympathy in the infinite sublimity of the storm. It is a moral force as well as he. With courage he can lay down his life on the strand, for it never turned a deaf ear to him, nor has he ever exhausted its sympathy. In the love of narrow souls I make many short voyages, but in vain. I find no sea-room. But in great souls I sail before the wind without a watch, and never reach the shore. You demand that I be less your friend than you may know it. Nothing will reconcile friends but love. They make a fatal mistake when they go about like foes to explain and treat with one another. It is a mutual mistake. None are so unmanageable. February 20th, Saturday I suspect the moral discrimination of the oldest and best authors— I doubt if Milton distinguished greatly between his Satan and his Raphael. In Homer and Aeschylus and Dante, I miss a nice discrimination of the important shades of character. When I am going out for an evening, I arrange the fire in my stove so that I do not fail to find a good one when I return though it would have engaged my frequent attention present. So that, when I know I am to be at home, I sometimes make believe that I may go out to save trouble. And this is the art of living, too, to leave our life in a condition to go alone, and not to require a constant supervision. We will then sit down serenely to live as by the side of a stove. When I sit in earnest, nothing must stand. All must be sedentary with me. I hear the faint sound of a vial and voices from the neighboring cottage and think to myself, I will believe the muse only forevermore. 
it assures me that no gleam which comes over the serene soul is deceptive. It warns me of a reality and substance of which the best that I see is but the phantom and shadow. O oh, music, thou tellest me of things of which memory takes no heed. Thy strains are whispered aside from memory's ear. This is the noblest plain of earth, over which these sounds are born, the plain of Troy or Eleusis. Thou openest all my senses to catch thy least hint, and givest me no thought. It would be good to sit at my door of summer evenings for ever and hear thy strains. Thou makest me to toy with speech, or walk content without it, not regretting its absence. I am pleased to think how ignorant and shiftless the wisest are. My imperfect sympathies with my friend are cheerful, glimmering light in the valley. February 21st, Sunday It is hard to preserve equanimity and greatness on that debatable ground between love and esteem. There is nothing so stable and unfluctuating as love. The waves beat steadfast on its shore forever, and its tide has no ebb. It is a resource in all extremities, and a refuge even from itself. And yet love will not be leaned on. February 22nd Love is the tenderest mood of that which is tough, and the toughest mood of that which is tender. It may be roughly handled as the nettle, or gently as the violet. It has its holidays, but is not made for them. The whole of the day should not be daytime, nor of the night, nighttime. But some portion be rescued from time to oversee time in. All our hours must not be current, all our time must not lapse. There must be one hour at least which the day did not bring forth, of ancient parentage and long-established nobility, which will be a serene and lofty platform overlooking the rest. We should make our notch every day on our characters, as Robinson Crusoe on his stick. We must be at the helm at least once a day. We must feel the tiller rope in our hands and know that if we sail, we steer. Friends will be much apart. They will respect more each other's privacy than their communion, for therein is the fulfillment of our high aims and the conclusion of our arguments. That we know and would associate with not only has high intents but goes on high errands and has much private business the hours he devotes to me were snatched from higher society he is hardly a gift leveled to me but i have to reach up to take it 
my imagination always assigns him a nobler employment in my absence than ever I find him engaged in. We have to go into retirement religiously and enhance our meeting by rarity and a degree of unfamiliarity. Would you know why I see thee so seldom, my friend? In solitude I have been making up a packet for thee. The actions which grow out of some common but natural relations affect me strangely, as sometimes the behavior of a mother to her children. So quiet and noiseless an action often moves me more than many sounding exploits. February 23rd, Tuesday Let all our stores and munitions be provided for the lone state. The care of the body is the highest exercise of prudence. If I have brought this weakness on my lungs, I will consider calmly and disinterestedly how the thing came about, that I may find out the truth and render justice. Then, after patience, I shall be a wiser man than before. Let us apply all our wit to the repair of our bodies, as we would mend a harrow for the body will be dealt plainly and implicitly with. We want no moonshine nor surmises about it. This matter of health and sickness has no fatality in it, but is a subject for the merest prudence. If I know not what ails me, I may resort to amulets and charms and moonstruck die of dysentery. We do wrong to slight our sickness and feel so ready to desert our posts when we are harassed. So much the more should we rise above our condition and make the most of it, for the fruit of disease may be as good as that of health. There is a subtle elixir in society which makes it a fountain of health to the sick. We want no consolation which is not the overflow of our friend's health. We will have no condolence who are not dolent ourselves. We would have our friend come and respire healthily before us with the fragrance of many meadows and heaths in his breath, and we will inhabit his body while our own recruits. Nothing is so good medicine in sickness as to witness some nobleness in another which will advertise us of health. In sickness it is our faith that ails, and noble deeds reassure us. That anybody has thought of you on some indifferent occasion frequently implies more good will than you had reason to expect you have henceforth a higher motive for conduct. We do not know how many amiable thoughts are current. February 26th, Friday My prickles or smoothness are as much a quality of your hand as of myself. 
I cannot tell you what I am more than a ray of the summer's sun. What I am, I am, and say not. Being is the great explainer. In the attempt to explain, shall I plane away all the spines till it is no thistle but a cornstalk? If my world is not sufficient without thee, my friend, I will wait till it is, and then call thee. You shall come to a palace, not to an almshouse. My homeliest thought, like the diamond brought from farthest within the mine, will shine with the purest luster. Though I write every day, yet when I say a good thing, it seems as if I wrote but rarely. To be great, we do as if we would be tall merely, be longer than we are broad, stretch ourselves and stand on tiptoe. But greatness is well proportioned, unstrained, and stands on the soles of the feet. How many are waiting for health and warm weather, but they wait for none. In composition, I miss the hue of the mind, as if we could be satisfied with the dews of the morning and evening without their colors, or the heavens without their azure. This good book helps the sunshine in my chamber. The rays fall on its page as if to explain and illustrate it. I, who have been sick, hear cattle low in the street, with such a healthy ear as prophesies my cure. These sounds lay a finger on my pulse to some purpose. A fragrance comes in at all my senses, which proclaims that I am still of nature the child. The threshing in yonder barn and the tinkling of the anvil come from the same side of sticks with me. If I were a physician, I would try my patience thus. I would wheel them to a window and let nature feel their pulse. It will soon appear if their sensuous existence is sound. These sounds are but the throbbing of some pulse in me. Nature seems to have given me these hours to pry into her private drawers. I watch the shadow of the insensible perspiration rising from my coat or hand on the wall. I go and feel my pulse in all the recesses of the house and see if I am of force to carry a homely life and comfort into them. End of chapter 5, part 4 Chapter 5, 1841, at the age of 23 to 24, part 5 of the Journal of Henry David Thoreau, volume 1, 1837 to 1846. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5, Part 5 February 27th, Saturday 
life looks as fair at this moment as a summer's sea or a blonde dress in a saffron light with its sun and grass and walled towns so bright and chaste as fair as my own virtue which would adventure therein like a persian city or hanging gardens in the distance so washed in light so untried only to be thridded by clean thoughts all its flags are flowing and tassels streaming and drapery flapping like some gay pavilion the heavens hang over it like some low screen and seem to undulate in the breeze through this pure unwiped hour as through a crystal glass i look out upon the future as a smooth lawn for my virtue to disport in it shows from afar as unrepulsive as the sunshine upon walls and cities over which the passing life moves as gently as a shadow i see the course of my life like some retired road wind on without obstruction into a country maze i am attired for the future so as the sun setting presumes all men at leisure and in contemplative mood and am thankful that it is thus presented blank and indistinct it still o'ertops my hope my future deeds bestir themselves within me and move grandly towards a consummation as ships going down the thames a steady onward motion i feel in me as still as that or like some vast snowy cloud whose shadow first is seen across the fields it is the material of all things loose and set afloat that makes my sea these various words are not without various meanings the combined voice of the race makes nicer distinctions than any individual there are the words diversion and amusement it takes more to amuse than to divert we must be surrendered to our amusements but only turned aside to our diversions we have no will in the former but oversee the latter we are oftenest diverted in the street but amused in our chambers we are diverted from our engagements but amused when we are listless we may be diverted from an amusement and amused by a diversion it often happens that a diversion becomes our amusement and our amusement our employment february twenty eighth nothing goes by luck in composition it allows of no tricks the best you can write will be the best you are every sentence is the result of a long probation the author's character is read from title page to end of this he never corrects the proofs 
we read it as the essential character of a handwriting without regard to the flourishes and so of the rest of our actions it runs as straight as a ruled line through them all no matter how many curvets about it our whole life is taxed for the least thing well done it is its net result how we eat drink sleep and use our desultory hours now in these indifferent days with no eye to observe and no occasion to excite us determines our authority and capacity for the time to come march third i hear a man blowing a horn this still evening and it sounds like the plaint of nature in these times in this which i refer to some man there is something greater than any man it is as if the earth spoke it adds a great remoteness to the horizon and its very distance is grand as when one draws back the head to speak that which i now hear in the west seems like an invitation to the east it runs round the earth as a whisper gallery it is the spirit of the west calling to the spirit of the east or else it is the rattling of some team lagging in day's train coming to me through the darkness and silence all things great seem transpiring there it is friendly as a distant hermit's taper when it is trilled or undulates the heavens are crumpled into time and successive waves flow across them it is a strangely healthy sound for these disjointed times it is a rare soundness when cowbells and horns are heard from over the fields and now i see the beauty and full meaning of that word sound nature always possesses a certain sonorousness as in the hum of insects the booming of ice the crowing of cocks in the morning and the barking of dogs in the night which indicates her sound state god's voice is but a clear bell sound i drink in a wonderful health a cordial in sound the effect of the slightest tinkling in the horizon measures my own soundness i thank god for sound it always mounts and makes me mount i think i will not trouble myself for any wealth when i can be so cheaply enriched here i contemplate to drudge that i may own a farm and may have such a limitless estate for the listening all good things are cheap all bad are very dear as for these communities i think i had rather keep bachelor's hall in hell than go to board in heaven do you think your virtue will be boarded with you it will never live on the interest of your money depend upon it the boarder has no home in heaven 
I hope to bake my own bread and clean my own linen. The tomb is the only boarding house in which a hundred are served at once. In the catacomb we may dwell together and prop one another without loss. March 4th Ben Jonson says in his epigrams, quote, He makes himself a thoroughfare of vice. End quote. This is true, for by vice the substance of a man is not changed, but all his pores and cavities and avenues are profaned by being made the thoroughfares of vice. He is the highway of his vice. The searching devil courses through and through him. His flesh and blood and bones are cheapened. He is all trivial, a place where three highways of sin meet. So is another the thoroughfare of virtue, and virtue circulates through all his aisles like a wind, and he is hallowed. We reprove each other unconsciously by our own behavior. Our very carriage and demeanor in the streets should be a reprimand that will go to the conscience of every beholder. An infusion of love from a great soul gives a color to our faults, which will discover them as lunar caustic detects impurities in water. The best will not seem to go contrary to others, but as if they could afford to travel the same way, they go a parallel but higher course, a sort of upper road. Johnson says, quote, That to the vulgar canst thyself apply, treading a better path, not contrary. End quote. Their way is a mountain slope, a river valley's course, a tide which mingles a myriad lesser currents. March 5th, Friday. How can our love increase, unless our loveliness increase also? We must securely love each other as we love God, with no more danger that our love be unrequited or ill-bestowed. There is that in my friend before which I must first decay and prove untrue. Love is the least moral and the most. Are the best good in their love, or the worst bad? March 6th an honest misunderstanding is often the ground of future intercourse. The Sphinx March 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th The Sphinx is man's insatiable and questioning spirit, which still, as of old, stands by the roadside in us and proposes the riddle of life to every passer. The ancients represented this by a monster who was a riddle of herself, having a body composed of various creatures, as if to hint that she had no individual existence, 
but was nearly allied to and brooded over all. They made her devour those who were unable to explain her enigmas, as we are devoured by doubt and struggle towards the light, as if to be assured of our lives. For we live by confidence, and our bravery is in some moment when we are certain to that degree that our certainty cannot be increased. As, when a ray bursts through a gap in a cloud, it darts as far and reaches the earth as surely as the whole sun would have done. 1. In the first four lines is described the mood in which the sphinx bestirs herself in us. We must look on the world with a drowsy and half-shut eye, that it may not be too much in our eye, and rather stand aloof from than within it. When we are awake to the real world, we are asleep to the actual. The sinful drowse to eternity, the virtuous to time. Menu says that the supreme omnipresent intelligence is a spirit which can only be conceived by a mind slumbering. Wisdom and holiness always slumber. They are never active in the ways of the world. As in our night dreams we are nearest to awakening, so in our daydreams we are nearest to a supernatural awakening, and the plain and flat satisfactoriness of life becomes so significant as to be questioned. The Sphinx hints that in the ages her secret is kept, but in the annihilation of ages alone is it revealed. So far from solving the problem of life, time only serves to propose and keep it in. Time waits but for its solution to become eternity. Its lapse is measured by the successive failures to answer the incessant question and the generations of men are the unskillful passengers devoured. 2. She hints generally at man's mystery. He knows only that he is, not what nor whence. Not only is he curiously and wonderfully wrought, but with Daedalian intricacy. He is lost in himself as a labyrinth and has no clue to get out by. If he could get out of his humanity, he would have got out of nature. Daedalian expresses both the skill and the inscrutable design of the builder. The insolubleness of the riddle is only more forcibly expressed by the lines, quote, out of sleeping, a waking, out of waking, a sleep. They express the complete uncertainty and renunciation of knowledge of the propounder. Three, four, five, six. 
in these verses is described the integrity of all animate and inanimate things but man how each is a problem of itself and not the solution of one and presides over and uses the mystery of the universe as unhesitatingly as if it were the partner of god how by a sort of essential and practical faith each understands all for to see that we understand is to know that we misunderstand each natural object is an end to itself a brave undoubting life do they all live and are content to be a part of the mystery which is god and throw the responsibility on man of explaining them and himself too three the outlines of the trees are as correct as if ruled by god on the sky the motions of quadrupeds and birds nature never thinks to mend but they are a last copy and the flourishes of his hand four the waves lapse with such a melody on the shore as shows that they have long been at one with nature theirs is as perfect play as if the heavens and earth were not they meet with a sweet difference and independently as old playfellows nothing do they lack more than the world the ripple is proud to be a ripple and balances the sea the atoms which are in such a continual flux notwithstanding their minuteness have a certain essential valor and independence they have the integrity of worlds and attract and repel firmly as such the least has more manhood than democritus five so also in nature the perfection of the whole is the perfection of the parts and what is itself perfect serves to adorn and set off all the rest her distinctions are but reliefs night valeth the morning for the morning's sake and the vapor adds a new attraction to the hill nature looks like a conspiracy for the advantage of all her parts when one feature shines all the rest seem suborned to heighten its charm in her circle each gladly gives precedence to the other day gladly alternates with night behind these the vapor atones to the hill for its interference and this harmonious scene is the effect of that at one mint six in a sense the babe takes its departure from nature as the grown man his departure out of her and so during its nonage is at one with her and as a part of herself it is indeed the very flower and blossom of nature shines the peace of all being without cloud in its eyes and the sum of the world 
in soft miniature lies. To the charming consistency of the palm and thrush, this universal and serene beauty is added as all the leaves of the tree flower in the blossom. 7. But alas, the fruit to be matured in these petals is fated to break the stem which holds it to universal consistency. It passes through nature to manhood and becomes unnatural without being as yet quite supernatural. Man's most approved life is but conformity, not a simple and independent consistency which would make all things conform to it. His actions do not adorn nature nor one another, nor does she exist in harmony but in contrast with them. She is not their willing scenery. We conceive that if a true action were to be performed, it would be assisted by nature, and perhaps be fondled and reflected many times as the rainbow. The sun is a true light for the trees in a picture, but not for the actions of men. They will not bear so strong a light as the stubble. The universe has little sympathy with them, and sooner or later they rebound hollowly on the memory. The April shower should be as reviving to our life as to the garden and the grove, and the scenery in which we live reflect our own beauty, as the dewdrop the flower. It is the actual man, not the actual nature, that hurts the romance of the landscape. He poisons the ground. The haymakers must be lost in the grass of the meadow. They may be Faustus and Amentus here, but near at hand they are Reuben and Jonas. The woodcutter must not be better than the wood lest he be worse. Neither will bear to be considered as a distinct feature. Man's works must lie in the bosom of nature, cottages be buried in trees, or under vines and moss, like rocks, that they may not outrage the landscape. The hunter must be dressed in Lincoln green, with a plume of eagle's feathers, to embosom him in nature. So the skillful painter secures the distinctness of the whole by the indistinctness of the parts. We can endure best to consider our repose and silence. Only when the city, the hamlet, or the cottage is viewed from a distance does man's life seem in harmony with the universe but seen closely his actions have no eagle's feathers or lincoln green to redeem them the sunlight on cities at a distance is a deceptive beauty but foretells the final harmony of man with nature man as he is is not the subject of any art strictly speaking 
the naturalist pursues his study with love, but the moralist persecutes his with hate. In man is the material of a picture, with a design partly sketched, but nature is such a picture drawn and colored. He is a studio, nature a gallery. If men were not idealists, no sonnets to beautiful persons, nor eulogies on worthy ones would ever be written. We wait for the preacher to express such love for his congregation as the botanist for his herbarium. 8. Man, however, detects something in the lingering, ineradicable sympathy of nature which seems to side with him against the stern decrees of the soul. Her essential friendliness is only the more apparent to his waywardness, for disease and sorrow are but a rupture with her. In proportion as he renounces his will, she repairs his hurts, and, if she burns, does oftener warm, if she freezes, oftener refreshes. This is the motherliness which the poet personifies, and the sphinx, or wisely inquiring man, makes express a real concern for him. Nature shows us a stern kindness, and only we are unkind. She endures long with us, and though the severity of her law is unrelaxed, yet its evenness and impartiality look relenting, and almost sympathize with our fault. 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 But to the poet there are no riddles. They are pleasant songs to him. His faith solves the enigmas which recurring wisdom does not fail to repeat. Poetry is the only solution time can offer. But the poet is soonest a pilgrim from his own faith. Our brave moments may still be distinguished from our wise. Though the problem is always solved for the soul, still does it remain to be solved by the intellect. Almost faith puts the question, for only in her light can it be answered. However true the answer, it does not prevent the question, for the best answer is but plausible and man can only tell his relation to truth, but render no account of truth to herself. 9. Believe and ask not, says the poet. Deep love lieth under these pictures of time. They fade in the light of their meaning sublime. Nothing is plain but love. 10, 11, 12, 13. Man comes short because he seeks perfection. He adorns no world while he is seeking to adorn a better. 
his best actions have no reference to their actual scenery. For when our actions become of that worth that they might confer a grace on nature, they pass out of her into a higher arena, where they are still mean and awkward, so that the world beholds only the rear of great deeds and mistakes them often for inconsistencies, not knowing with what higher they consist. Nature is beautiful as in repose, not promising a higher beauty tomorrow. Her actions are level to one another, and so are never unfit or inconsistent. Shame and remorse, which are so unsightly to her, have a prospective beauty and fitness which redeem them. We would have our lover to be nobler than we, and do not fear to sacrifice our love to his greater nobleness. Better the disagreement of noble lovers than the agreement of base ones. In friendship each will be nobler than the other, and so avoid the cheapness of a level and idle harmony. Love will have its chromatic strains, discordant yearnings for higher chords, as well as symphonies. Let us expect no finite satisfaction. 13. Who looks in the sun will see no light else, but also he will see no shadow. Our life revolves unceasingly, but the center is ever the same, and the wise will regard only the seasons of the soul. 14. The poet concludes with the same trust he began with, and jeers at the blindness which could inquire. But our sphinx is so wise as to put no riddle that can be answered. It is a great presumption to answer conclusively a question which any sincerity has put. The wise answer no questions, nor do they ask them. She silences his jeers with the conviction that she is the eye-beam of his eye. Our proper eye never quails before an answer. To rest in a reply, as a response of the oracle, that is error. But to suspect time's reply, because we would not degrade one of God's meanings to be intelligible to us, that is wisdom. We shall never arrive at his meaning, but it will ceaselessly arrive to us. The truth we seek with ardor and devotion will not reward us with a cheap acquisition. We run unhesitatingly in our career, not fearing to pass any goal of truth in our haste. We career toward her eternally. A truth rested in stands for all the vice of an age, and revolution comes kindly to restore health. 16. The cunning sphinx, who had been hushed into stony silence and repose in us, 
arouses herself and detects a mystery in all things in infancy the moon fire flowers sea mountain and seventeen and the spirit of the old fable declares proudly who telleth one of my meanings is master of all i am when some oedipus has solved one of her enigmas she will go dash her head against a rock you may find this as enigmatical as the sphinx's riddle indeed i doubt if she could solve it herself march eleventh thursday every man understands why a fool sings End of chapter 5, part 5.